amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hey, how you doing? My name is Nolan. I'm from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are the world's number one automotive podcast. That's right. We're a storytelling show. This week, it's part three of our history of Mazda. Last week, we talked about the rotary engine and how they started a little bit of racing. This week, they got a lot more serious with it. They needed to make a big splash in the world stage. They decided to go to Le Mans over there in France and prove that they could keep up with the Europeans and the Americans. They did have a hard time with it, though. It's very intriguing. The rotary engine we talked about last week had some challenges. This is for the real Mazda heads and anybody who's curious about automotive history in general. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Pass gas. I'll see you there. Pass gas podcast. It's about cars. It's not about ports. Hey guys, welcome to the Past Gas Podcast. If you like Past Gas, please help us grow by giving us a good rating and a nice review on the podcast platform of your choice. It'll really help us out, and I really appreciate that. So thank you. All right, now for the show. The Isle of Man, an ancient emerald island embedded in the blue waters of the Irish Sea. The island's highest point is a mountain called Snaefell. It's said that on a clear day, six kingdoms can be seen from the summit. England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, the Isle of Man, and heaven. Racing up the mountain of craggy stone, closer and closer to that of the final kingdom are two men, perched atop steel horses. They are Mike Halewood and Giacomo Agostini. They're racing in the Isle of Man Tourist Trophy, the most famous and deadly motorcycle race in the world. Snaefell watches the men in silence, but its calm is deceptive. Over 250 men will eventually lose their lives amidst its hills and valleys. The year is 1967, and Halewood and Augustini are said by many to be the two greatest motorcycle riders to ever race. Today, they're pitted in battle against one another. Who will prevail, Halewood or Augustini, man or mountain? And how did a century-old race that has been around for almost as long as motorcycles themselves come to exist in the first place? All of that on today's Past Gas. Okay, this is fun. That's like a John Carpenter hit. (laughs) Man, I'm so happy that uh, gigantic bass trombone players finally have work (laughs) in in movies. (laughs) Yeah, Hans Zimmer really, uh, he really messed the game up with that one. Do you remember for like 10, 15 years, it people use the Requiem for a Dream song in everything. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, no, well, well, no, no, welcome no, no, to... no, 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 <laughs> What's happening? No, 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 I've never seen the end of the movie, just the be- just the beginning, and it makes me really want to hang out with my my friend Marlon Wayans. All right, He's, everyone, he should, calm. He calm should do down. more like uh, dramatic roles. He's really good in that. Yeah, he is. All those dudes are worth like like he's worth like thirty million dollars or something. It's all that scary movie money. Yeah, all <laughs> like all all the Wayans brothers have like over ten. Like tens and millions of dollars. Those guys are. Have you ever seen this? I mean, we shouldn't start off the podcast with a tangent, but I'm gonna get you, sucker. It was their first, like their first, the Wayne's brothers' first 
parody movie mm-hmm. in the early eighties of like uh it's a parody of black exploitation movies and it's so good. Check it out. I'm gonna get you sucker. They're well, my favorite have... American dynasty. Oh yeah. my goodness. Guys, this is a, a car automotive podcast. We can't keep going Speak on this tangent about the talented Wayans brothers. Uh, everyone, welcome back to Past Gas. Speaking Gash. of kingdoms, the Wayans uh, brothers are royalty. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> welcome back to Past Gas, everyone. I'm your host, Nolan Sykes. As always, joined by my two good friends, we got James Pumphrey. Do these leaves look broken? <laughs> <laughs> and Joe Weber. Fart up. All right. <laughs> good to be with you guys this week. Oh, it's good um, to be with you too, Nolan. Yeah, this week we're talking about the Wayans brothers, as you might have heard from our intro. Uh, they are technically men. I mean, there is one sister, but we're talking about an Isle of Man. They are men. <laughs> yeah. Quite and the reach might, there. And I bet they own an island. That's Yeah, yeah probably do. The Isle oh. of the Isle of Way- Wayan. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought this podcast was. <laughs> no today we're talking about the isle of man tt the most dangerous and uh by extension infamous motorcycle race in the world um we're gonna start we're gonna talk about the island itself um how motorcycle racing came to be on the island and two of the greatest guys from the uh heyday uh of of motorcycle racing so very interesting story i'm embarrassed i think i've been saying the Isle of Man wrong this whole time. I thought there was a comma in it. I thought it was the Isle of Man. <laughs> really, this whole I, time. I can't, this is the, I can't this dignify breaks that. our record for the most bits to start <laughs> off a podcast. Yeah, it's really, uh, the, the listeners are really enjoying it. Um, what do you guys know about the Isle of Man already? Um, I've seen a documentary about the electric motorcycle race there. Okay. Oh. Pretty interesting. That's this cool. was uh, years ago before electric motorcycles uh, really took off. But what's the name of that? I'd like to check that out. Um, I don't know. I'm sure it's called like Electrified or like yeah. Electric <laughs> Man. You know, <laughs> sure it's called like Zapped. <laughs> Love it. Uh, my, I, I just know. I think I've researched it a couple times because I wanted to pitch it as like a wheelhouse or something. My biggest connection with it is. The, it shares the same flag as Sicily, and I'm Sicilian, and I at one point was very proud of my Sicilian heritage, so I got a tattoo. And so oh, I, yeah, that's I, right. actually, I have the Isle of Man tattooed on my arm. What is the connection there? Like, at least for like the Sicilian flag, it's the three little sheaths of wheat represent like prosperity and abundance and then the legs represent either like the army or like their military prowess uh because sicily's been conquered by so many different <laughs> like africans and uh greeks and italians is at a certain point i think it has to do with that which came first like who had it first did someone copy someone or is it just a coincidence oh. um or are they like I friends mean- were they like Hey, we're going to go get this flag. You want one? <laughs> yeah, dude, whatever you're getting, just pick me up one, yeah, too. Just get me whatever you get. <laughs> I have no idea. I should I should look at I've never, like, I've researched them separately, but I have never researched, like, their relationship. Yeah, the only thing I know about the Isle of Man is that it's dangerous. Um, and that's about it. Actually, that extends to your own danger because the plp 50 was designed on the isle of man and i I tipped one of those boys over yeah so it's dangerous for everyone (laughs) even if you're not on the island i don't know if we start talking about the plp 50 i might need to take my headphones off i don't think there's any oh my god do you guys hear that um straight piped hondas do not sound good i just want to say that (laughs) it sounds like a didgeridoo or like one of those like a vuvuzela or something (laughs) yeah it was a vuvuzela for sure oh man those times those things ruined sports for a minute yeah they did they really did (laughs) (laughs) all right well you guys know it's dangerous and that's got a funky flag and i think that's a good starting point uh are you guys ready to get ready to get into it yeah let's do it all right let's get into the danger 
<laughs> Halfway between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, the Isle of Man is a magical land that time has barely touched. The flag is red and features an emblem called the Triskelion, three legs arranged in a spiral like a throwing star. It's an ancient symbol that has represented the island for centuries. Its people on the island are known as the Manx, with an X, and have lived on the island for over 8,000 years. There's also wow. a breed of tailless cat called the Manx uh, that only live on the island. Locals call them Stubbins. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, just from that, I can tell so much about these people. Like, just oh. yeah. <laughs> jo jolly people. Oh, Stubbins. I already want to go. I want to go yeah. to the Isle of Man. When it's safe, of course. Magical. Uh, the people call themselves a cool thing. They call. They got a tailless cat that they love. They cool flag. Cool flag. They've been there for eight thousand years, which is definitely longer than the the Sicilian flag. But you don't know when they made the flag. Well, That's yeah. True. I mean that require that'll be its own. Tra trail of research you got to do on that joke because I think that's the only time we talk about the flag. Yeah, it should not just like <laughs> assume stuff. <laughs> uh, so another key fact, another key fact, gentlemen, about the Isle of Man is that it's the oh, birthplace I see what you did there. of the Bee Gees. Okay, and while "Staying Alive" is not the official song of the Isle of Man TT, it probably should be. Wow. <laughs> At times, that's the guy, island... That's got me freaking... I'm ready to d get into this. Sorry, right, I cut well, you off as you're getting into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to interrupt you getting into it to tell you that I am ready to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> At times, the Isle of Man has been controlled by Norsemen, Scots, the English, and even Vikings. And although the island has many ties to the United Kingdom, it has its own government and is technically independent. It's that unique independence combined with stunning geography and sparse population that made the Isle of Man a perfect fit for racing. In 1904, auto racing was exploding in popularity, and British and Irish drivers were eager to compete. However, the law was against them. An enterprising Brit named Julian Ord came to the Isle of Man and saw its potential. The laws on the island were quickly changed to allow auto racing, and in 1904, the first automobile race was held on the island. So what is this This um, Julian Ord guy was just like, no, change your laws. And they're like, and all it? right. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, I guess racing is pretty cool. Hey, listen. <laughs> We're going to bring a lot of vendors here. And your food and bev sales are going to go through the roof. You ever <laughs> tried a hot dog? <laughs> However, it was motorcycles and not cars that the Isle of Man was to become famous for. Central to the push for two-wheeled racing was a French nobleman named Marquis de Musouli Saint-Mars, which sounds like a Will Ferrell <laughs> SNL character. They got cut for time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Marquis de Musili St. Mars, man. That's he, a cool name. It is. Yeah. It is a cool name. I mean, that's a perfect way to sum it up. Will Ferrell, SNL character that got cut for time. Yeah. Enthusiasts wanted to emphasize the potential of touring motorcycles designed and marketed for Sunday rides through the British countryside and the Marquis arranged for the tourist trophy to be awarded as part of a, quote, race for the development of the ideal touring motorcycle. From then on, the tourist trophy race, or the Isle of Man TT, as it's better known as, would play a key role in the evolution of motorcycle technology and racing. The TT wasn't just a race, it was a weeks-long festival of motorcycling. In the words of motorcycle historian James Sheldon, the Isle of Man, quote, was to provide a ready proving ground for every new idea in motorcycling, every development, every angle of design. However right in theory a new idea might be, it was not until it was proven on the Isle of Man that it was accepted, end quote. So I didn't, I didn't realize this. this is, um, I didn't know that this was such a, a big uh, keystone in the foundation of motorcycling this race cool 
A race couldn't be held without a trophy, and the marquee came through in a big way. At first, he wanted it to be Sonic the Hedgehog given a thumbs up, but since Sonic <laughs> didn't exist yet, he went with his second idea. A 52-pound, all-silver sculpture of Mercury, the Roman messenger god, standing on top of a motorcycle with wings. Hell yeah. I think, I think trophies are too big. Sorry if that's a hot take, but... That's like when Ayrton Senna won that race. I think it was in Brazil where he was stuck in sixth and he's uh -huh. like exhausted. And then they hand him this like massive heavy trophy. And <laughs> it's almost like a prank. Like they're exhausted at that point. Like just give them like a small trophy they can hold up. I think Joe, you also have so many trophies that you're running yeah. out of space. You're well, like, I mean, it's like you're at like, a certain point smaller already. Yeah. At a certain point, I just like want to stop winning everything I do, just yeah. so I don't have to like lift these trophies up. You're this basically trophy... like you're the you're the Judah Friedlander of trophies, really. Yeah, that's kind of how I've been describing myself lately. <laughs> <laughs> this trophy is huge. Yeah, it's fifty-two pounds. Oh, I also just want to use this as an opportunity to remind McLaren: uh, if you guys don't want to display that awesome Sega Sonic trophy then please please send it to us and we will display it in our uh, new office. They, uh, they actually put it up in their trophy case. Oh, nice. Well, good. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, just good. recently. Good. It's been like for two weeks. What? Dude, do you yeah, think we did? Do you think? I think that's us. I think that's a win for us. I think, I think it was like that. around the same time. I don't, I don't want to take credit for it. I uh, do. <laughs> Let's take credit for it. I yeah, don't think it was us. I do. It was us. All right. Well, I don't think it's accurate, but follow follow the money, Nolan. Follow the money. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll follow. Yeah, I'll do that. I'm just saying, Nolan. You know what? Okay, James. We're living, if you're gonna be living your truth, just let me know first, okay? <laughs> follow the money, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I know you want to, you know, be a sheep and live with your eyes closed <laughs> because it's easy for you, but. There's no such thing as coincidences. Keep saying that. <laughs> we're we're all stardust, dude. You know, McLaren has a reputation, and they, you know, we were on a Spotify list recently. So <laughs> top, we're in the top five leisure podcasts. Yeah. Tell me that's not influential. Oh man. You anyway, know, you know those McLaren engineers and execs are listening to leisure podcasts. They're like, oh, oh let yeah. Me go. Let me go right down the line. I'll, yeah, something. I'll listen, I'll listen to the top six. Yeah, something <laughs> F1 engineers and uh, management in Formula One is their is their uh, their love for leisure. That's yeah. that's how they get <laughs> well, so no, good man, is that they, they take gotta, a lot of time they, off. They got to turn it off. They got to turn it off more than most people because they're they're on know, so man. hard. <laughs> 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 the initial circuit, known as St. John's Course was a modest 15-mile loop, raced for, raced for 10 laps for a total of 158 miles. The course took racers through several picturesque towns and along the rocky western coast of the island. Bikes at the time ranged from 150 to 200 pounds with narrow wheels and frames, an exposed belt running from the engine to the rear tire, and bicycle-style curved handlebars. They often had bicycle pedals to help on the hills, because manufacturers were still figuring out how to um, design a bike with reliable gearing and transmissions, and many bikes of the time were one speed. Uh, much of the course was unpaved, and the top speeds were around 60 miles per hour. So what year was this? Yeah, early 1900s. That, that must have been terrifying. Yeah. I think I'd like to rip around the Isle of Man on, on an old motorcycle. I would do the motor. I want to do the Isle of Man TT, but on like a Grom or something like that. I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to go fast. I just want to like kind of yeah. put along, see the scenery, check everything out, and be like, "All right, cool." Yeah, my wanna... dream bike is uh uh the Husqvarna 450. That like half is that the um, Vitpilin? Hey, it's kind of like looks like a Scrambler a little bit, but it's it's just so nice and freaking small. Yeah, and those cool, Huskies are good just... looking bikes. Yeah. 
The winner of the first tourist trophy was Charles Collier, a racing a single cylinder motorcycle from the British maker Matchless. Matchless motorcycles, that's tight. Yeah, that is cool. Triumph and Norton also had several bikes in competition. It's cool to think that all these companies had existed for only a few years. They were essentially startups. Triumph, for example, was originally a bicycle company and had only built motorcycles since 1902. Collier averaged 38.22 miles per hour for his win, <laughs> a gentlemanly speed that would be exponentially improved on in future races. His name was inscribed on the tourist trophy, and he became the first name in what would grow into more than a century of TT champions. I love how all these old motorcycle companies, like they all started with penny farthing bikes and stuff <laughs> yeah. like that, or like, or like uh -huh. tricycles meant to schlep around corks or whatever it's i was just like utilitarian things by 1911 the course moved to its iconic circuit what's now known as the mountain course a 37 mile loop that went from sea level start up to the northern face of snowfall mountain a 1400 foot climb that was hugely demanding of the motorcycles in the early 1900s because of the elevation gears were increasingly adopted the race was now split into junior and senior divisions, with junior being capped at 340 cc's and senior multi-cylinder engines at 585 cc. The lore of the beasts known as the mountain course could fill a book. Like a smaller racing circuit, its turns, dips, and climbs have steadily developed their own personalities and history. And where a legendary course like Monaco is two miles long, the mountain course of Isle of Man TT is nearly 20 times that at 37 miles. There are over 200 corners on this course, 60 of which are named. Many of the names <laughs> like Birkin's Bend or Brandish Corner are for riders who crashed on that particular bend. Dang. Wow. Lear yeah. Learning the... So it's like an honor you don't want to get. Yeah. No. Yeah. Learning the intricacies of the course is a years-long effort for many drivers, similar to how taxi drivers in London who have to learn the knowledge... They must memorize not only the turns, but also the many bumps and rises with elevation going from sea level to 1300 feet. The complexity is insane. So that the knowledge is, um, you know, like the black cabbies that they have in London. Yeah. Um, they need to memorize every street in London before they can get their license. That's so. And they have to know like routes and stuff. It's like, I heard it's like a multi-year process before you can even get the privilege of like being a, a cabbie yeah. license. Well, like the Isle of Man, like it being such a long course, you know, like on a racetrack, once you memorize all the turns, you get way faster. You know what I mean? So yeah. like we went to Button Willow and as soon as we knew where all the turns were, it was you know, a lot, we were a lot more confident and, uh, a lot faster. So I can't imagine learning 200 corners. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, like being able to memorize that allows you to actually focus on driving the car to uh -huh. its absolute limit instead of being right. like, Oh I, crap, I got to be this speed at this corner and stuff. It's just like, uh -huh. you already know everything mm -hmm. by muscle memory. And you're just like, all right, how can I drive this at 10 tenths? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I am. Um, I live on a mountain now. And I'm like yeah. learning and I'm, I'm learning the mountain. It's, it's pretty uh -huh. fun. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, there's like, I'm like, there's like a chicane, like, right. Like, and it's like, it's great. It's like, oh no, there's a yeah. big old switchback. Yeah. For you have, you have some pretty cool curves going up. Like I, I drive it in that M4. Oh yeah. My curvy, my curvy host. I love my curvy host. <laughs> okay. Back to the Isle of Man. Uh, for example, in the first two miles, in the first two miles of the race, you would start in the town of Douglas with residential houses lining the road. You'd pass St. Ninian's Crossroads and roar down Bray Hill before bottoming out and immediately rising up an uphill. Culminating in Agos Leap, named after Giancomo Agostini, one of the two racers whose story we'll be getting into in this episode. Up Cornbridge Road, you're penned in by steep stone walls on both sides before the town gives way to wooded countryside and you gun into Braggin Bridge, overlooked cool. by centuries-old Kirk Braddon Church. Take a breath. With all that behind you, you've still got 35 miles to go in your first oh lap of six. 
The race is equally a test of endurance as it is memorization, which is what makes both factors so key. When you're tired is when you most want the course to be built into your muscle memory. Guy Martin, one of the greatest TT riders ever, says that while he's racing the TT, he often doesn't even know what lap he's on. Yeah, I could imagine. There's so many curves and stuff. You just kind of get lost and get stuck in that like Zen state. Yeah, and it's also create like I know we're talking about James still, but like the race course is also pretty impressive too. When it comes <laughs> to its curves and all You're that. Talking about my curves? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> we'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 1911 saw a couple other notable events that would define the excitement and the danger of the Isle of Man TT. The first was that U.S.-based Indian motorcycle company's twin-cylinder models dominated, sweeping the podium in the senior division. It was a big blow to the British motorcycle manufacturers that had been dominant up to that point and oh, fed a rivalry... Such a blow. <laughs> and fed a rivalry that only pushed the development of the sport further. Average speeds had already increased from an average under 40 miles an hour to 50 miles per hour in the first four years of the race. Well, and that's average speeds. Can you imagine? You know? All right. It's 1911. You're a motorcycle rider in America. You hear about this crazy race on some little island over in England, around England. You load your motorcycle up on a boat and you're on that boat for like, I don't know, two weeks. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be crazy. Yeah, and like, that'd you, be like, crazy, dude. You like go down every once in a while. You go down into the cargo area. You like check on your bike. You know, you like sit yeah. on it. I just think that's like an excitement that really can't exist anymore. Yeah, that's not true. I got a. I got my Deftones. 10th an Di diamond eyes 10th anniversary shirt in the mail today and that was pretty exciting that was that was almost the same it's probably exactly the same yeah yeah i guess the, the, other the closest <laughs> the closest analogy we have nowadays is waiting for your deftones shirt from etsy in the four days it takes to ship from austin texas no i didn't get this one from etsy i got this was an official 10th anniversary diamond eyes t uh long sleeve tee it, it, it they uh because of uh the quarantine and all that they it took a long time for them to print it and ship it i ordered that like three months ago or whenever the the anniversary was and now you have a long sleeve t-shirt just in time for august so yeah it's great that's pretty fun um yeah oh we, we, no i think i ordered it in size large too see back then i was like five pounds lighter when i ordered it and now i'm not sure it's gonna fit <laughs> <laughs> we launched Aww. our first uh hoodies like in the middle of the hottest heat wave like in like five <laughs> years and they did not sell super well no <laughs> i wonder what i thought i thought that was so strange that we were doing that yeah <laughs> the other headline from that year was a tragic one victor surridge became the first person to die in a tt race when he crashed his bike during practice he was attempting to pass another racer and ran into a ditch, striking the side and dying instantly. He was only 18 years old. Oh, it was the man. first death of over 250 to come in the next century on the island. A shocking toll that has earned the Isle of Man a reputation as the world's deadliest race. Nobody back in 1911 knew how dangerous it would become, but Surridge's death was the first warning. In the 1910s, motorcycles continued to gain speed, and their riders built their skills and knowledge. Although World War I interrupted motorcycle racing, there was huge demand for motorcycles, with Triumph selling more than 30,000 of their mass-produced Model H bikes to the Allied forces. Even during wartime, the motorcycle continued to evolve, and its potential for mass production was now solidly established. 
At the time, there were major differences in American and British motorcycle manufacturing. In Britain, where nearly all the bikes that had competed in the TT were manufactured, diversity flourished with over 80 different companies producing motorcycle models. On the other hand, by the 30s, there would only be two motorcycle companies in America, Indian and Harley-Davidson, the latter of which had no presence at the Isle of Man despite being the biggest manufacturer worldwide. And while Indians saw early success of the TT, by 1924 they were no longer fielding in the races. In fact, after 1911, no American motorcycle would win a TT race for 99 years. Until 2010, a motorsiz... I don't know how to pronounce that. <laughs> C-Z-Y-S-C, Nolan, sound it out. <laughs> M-O-T-O-C-Z-Y-C-Z, motorsiz... Motorsizes <laughs> E1PC took, took first in the inaugural TT0 race yeah. for electric motorcycles. So that's ah, probably the, cool. Hey, that's I'm the really... documentary I watched. Full circle, dude. Full circle. Follow the money. Follow the money. Follow the money. <laughs> Follow the money. I'm really surprised that Harley Davidson never really raced in it. Yeah, me too. They were racing all, all the time. Electric Glide. Alec Bennett set a fastest lap of 59.99 miles per hour. I'm assuming that's average speed. Coming up just short of the mile-a-minute barrier, but showing that it was possible. This wasn't a simple oval. The track was technically demanding, and the road was often rough. 60 miles per hour was pretty fast. Bikes were again evolving significantly, with better brakes, multi-speed chain-driven gearboxes, twin exhausts, and twist-grip throttles. By the mid-1920s, top speeds were over 90 miles per hour. Good lord. Sheesh. In 1923 nope. came an amazing development. Sidecar races. Woo! A second... Yeah, hell yeah. A yeah! second rider would not only <laughs> ride in the sidecar, but crawl all over the motorcycle, leaning off the sides just inches off the ground, shifting the weight of the bike, and allowing the pilot to take harder turns. That's a special type of weirdo. Yeah, like oh, in yeah. a sidecar. Yeah, you're just like running around like a gremlin. Yeah. You know? Uh, oh, no, I don't want to drive it. I don't want to drive it. I just want to like crawl around it as it's going 90 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. Our friend Dylan's dad does that. Dylan Hughes' really? dad does that. Yeah. He's wow. a Whoa. professional FD driver, Dylan Hughes. His dad, like his, his, you know, like when you're a race car guy, your whole family's just kind of like that. Like, yeah. like <laughs> Dylan's brother can do like backflips and climbs on stuff. And his dad is like a sidecar race guy. I, uh, <laughs> I got into a sidecar racing hole last night. Um, and it's just incredible. These bikes, by the way, they do not have traditional um, motorcycle tires. They all three wheels are like 10 inch wide racing slicks. Whoa. Well, because uh, they don't they don't really like tilt as much, right? No, they don't. They don't. They don't lean the bike at all. That's what the passengers for, and they're just in, they're incredible machines. But also, uh, it's just so funny because like you you ever watch something? You ever watch a sport and be like, oh, this is a British sport. <laughs> like, <it> just, yeah. <laughs> like sidecar yeah. racing is definitely that. I watched a race that was at like Brands Hatch or something. Uh, it had like you know twenty of these bikes flying around the the short indie course there, and like the, the the commentators could not have been like less enthusiastic about it. And it's like this is amazing. These guys are crawling over this. They're they're like leaning their heads over these over these like uh, curbs and all that stuff. Yeah, that's a nice crawl. It's, yeah, it's insane. Thirty degrees there. Yeah, I think he's about. Six inches from the ground. Ooh, that's a nice. Yeah, crawl. those bikes are bikes are crazy. They have like a little the new ones anyway. They have like a handle in the passenger compartment, and that's what the that's what the dudes passengers holding on to the whole time, and uh, that's kind of it. Yeah, they have like these really big fairings and stuff. They're sick. Yeah, very aero fairings. Um, Let's get into what it. Else? Let's yeah. get into it. <laughs> There's a version of dirt bike sidecar racing too. I know. Like these Looking these guys do like jumps. They, they do, do like jumps? motocross courses. Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Anyway. That's crazy. 
Manufacturers uh, didn't love the sidecar event. They wanted more of a James Bond vibe than Mad Max. But the sidecar races were a hit with the fans and are still raced today where they continue to be absolutely insane as we talked about. <laughs> you should definitely check out sidecar racing after you listen to this episode. It's super cool. The sidecar guys probably have massive balls that provide additional weight for additional <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Nice. nice. Big old balls. Big old balls. <laughs> I got tiny little balls, but they hang real low. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> By 1930, the winner of the Senior TT would win a modest 200 British pounds, $16,000 in today's money. The race That's good. was more about glory than money, but that didn't reflect the big business that motorcycles were becoming. Manufacturers highly valued wins since it helped them sell bikes, and they offered cash bonuses to their riders that were many times more than the actual race winning. When their racers won, they would put out ads bragging stuff like, Norton goes one, two, three at man, or triumph, triumphs at the TT. <laughs> the race was going global, helping spread motorcycle enthusiasm around the world. Racers from 19 different countries competed in the 1930 event, including riders from Iraq, Jamaica, South, Af South Africa, Egypt, Australia, and most significantly Japan, where motorcycle culture and manufacturing was primed to explode. The Japanese racer Kenzo Tada who traveled for 40 days across Asia and Europe to reach the island. He placed 13th as the first Asian to ever compete in the TT. In Kenzo's words, mine was the first overseas racing expedition to be completed, and it linked the racing community of Japan with the rest of the racing world. That's Hell so yeah. cool. That's really cool. While the racers were becoming more international, the manufacturers were still British. Norton was the dominant brand of the 1930s. Its CS1 model was the perfect example of a TT model of the era. CS stood for camshaft, as the CS1 <laughs> featured a single-cylinder overhead cam engine. That's cool. Although there were multi-cylinder engines in use at the time, the advantage of the single-cylinder was a lighter weight, useful on the hilly terrain of the island. The CS1 weighed 319 pounds with 25 horsepower. The frame was a cradle design with curved steel tubes supporting the engine. Like other manufacturers, whatever Norton Motorcycle competed in the race was essentially a souped-up preview of what would be available to consumers the following year. Like homologation. Uh -huh. With the affordability of motorcycles, enthusiasts could actually drive a version of what the pros were working with. And the Isle of Man TT was a huge marketing opportunity. It's like, it's like going to a guitar center and buying some Travis Barker drumsticks. Like, same yeah. thing. Same thing. Well, yeah. I mean, remember, the first tourist trophy was all about, you know, trying to find the best touring bike. And these guys are still developing these bikes uh, to be dominant at the Isle of Man. So it's cool that they kept with it after 20 years, even. In 1936, war in Europe was again looming and its icy tendrils reached all the way to the Isle of Man. With tensions between Germany and Britain intensifying, BMW entered their first motorcycle. <laughs> a twin-cylinder, <laughs> supercharged bike that placed a respectable sixth place. Haha, <laughs> six places, the fifth loser. BMW, <laughs> BMW continued to enter racers in the following years. By 1939, war was clearly on the horizon, and the races saw a 40% increase in entries, with many riders correctly anticipating that it would be their last chance to race for many years. Oh, but, I was wondering. I was like, <laughs> why would that create more interest in this race? Because they're like, oh, I'm about to have to go get... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose my legs. Better hop on this motorcycle before that happens. Yeah. A political cartoon in the Isle of Man Weekly Times depicted Churchill and Hitler poised on top of motorcycles at a starting line with the foreboding caption, who will win? That's Ooh. cool. Yeah. That's like, is that weird if I put, if I get a copy of that hanging in my office? <laughs> uh, no. No. I just want to give everyone a heads up so they don't freak out. Uh, maybe by the next podcast shoot, uh, I'm get I'm gonna get some new art. I think I'm gonna move that donut banner into the garage. Um, I think I'm gonna I'm looking at uh, I'm really like sweet Swedish impressionalist painters now. I'm really into it. You should get some uh, Tama Finland in there. 
Uh, my first sketch comedy poster was a Tama Finland uh, drawing. The answer to that question was bad news for the British crowd in attendance. The race was the fastest the Isle of Man had ever seen with average race speeds just under 90 miles per hour. The German driver, George Meir, took first place with Jock West, a British rider racing on a BMW taken second. Traitor. Treacherous traitor. Giving the Germans a huge propaganda boost. Meyer gave the Nazi salute at the podium, a disturbing mirror image of Jesse Owens winning gold at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin with Hitler in attendance. West was embarrassed and feigned distraction as his teammates celebrated. To make matters even worse, the iconic silver Marquis de Mozilli trophy returned to Germany with the winner, giving a chance for Hitler himself to admire it at a victory ceremony in Bavaria. Three months after the race, the war began. And as you can guess, the Nazis weren't about to return that trophy, and it disappeared for many, many years. Luckily for the history of the TT and the world, the Allies won. After the war ended in 1945, there was a hunt on for the missing trophy. Rumors placed it at the BMW distributor in Vienna, where it had been sent to avoid bombing. Joe Craig, the head of Norton's racing team, traveled to Germany to meet with the British command stationed there, but was told that since Vienna was now under Russian command, he couldn't proceed. However, a lieutenant colonel named Blake was the liaison officer in Vienna and got wind of the efforts to recover the trophy. He arranged a visit to the BMW offices along with a truckload of heavily armed and belligerent Soviet troops. That's a quote. <laughs> the BMW guys had no choice but to hand over the trophy and it made its safe return to the island where it belonged. There it I is, feel like, a happy ending. Is this the same lieutenant colonel Blake that we talked about in the VW episode? No, that must have been a different... Was it Blake in that one? Yeah. There was a Blake. And he was, like, stationed in Germany at the time. It's a seems like a common name, so it's probably a long shot, but it might be the same dude. That would we be amazing if it was. Yeah. I bet that was such a fun day. You just, like, load up a bunch of, like, drunk Russian dudes, and they're just like, <laughs> yeah. they're like if they give us trouble, I will shoot them in the face. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, dude. <laughs> That's what I used to say to my my Russian friend Ilya. They only know two words, shta and suka. What does that mean? <laughs> what, bitch? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, dasvidanya is goodbye. So if you ever, if you ever like it, uh, after donut become an international spy and you have to like execute someone. Just say Dasvidanya. Dasvidanya. In the years immediately after the war, the Isle of Man TT race was in recovery mode along with the rest of Europe. High octane fuel was still being rationed, so speeds in the early post war period were actually lower than in the 1930s. However, the future was bright. In 1949, the World Championship Grand Prix was established and acknowledged the importance of the Isle of Man TT to motorcycle racing. The first Grand Prix event was at the 1949 Isle of Man TT. The 50s were a golden era for the TT. Crowd sizes increased, and there was a lively spirit of excitement and innovation. Motorcycle makers, especially the Italians, were actively experimenting with streamlining, resulting in egg-shaped enclosures that looked distinctly modern. So they're putting fairings on their bikes now. Yeah. In 1953, Norton developed the Manx Kneeler. And just like the name suggests, the driver actually knelt down, sorry, rider actually knelt down within the enclosure as they raced instead of in a seat. There was a sort of tummy rest. Although these designs were (laughs) eye-catching, they didn't really last. The high crosswinds (laughs) present on the island often threatened to blow them over from the side and riders reverted to classic motorcycle designs uh, i ate too many cookies i did uh some kind of tubby rest <laughs> <laughs> yeah sometimes when was... i eat too much it does feel good to like lean like hunch over my ottoman yeah. <laughs> like sometimes it, it takes the pressure off your back and your legs at the same time with the race now part of the grand prix it was more international than ever and 1954 also saw a visit that could change the course of both motorcycling and the isle of man in a huge way 
Soichiro Honda of yeah! Honda <laughs> was, there on a, was there on a fact-finding mission. Honda had only been founded six years earlier, but in that short time, it had become the biggest motorcycle producer in the world. Mind-blowing, given that their bikes were still only sold in Japan. Honda was poised for worldwide expansion, and Soichiro knew the Isle of Man was a gateway to the international market. Tichiro Honda 19- is one of the coolest dudes ever. He like did a he like at one point he like quit making motorcycles and stuff and just went and made whiskey for a few years. Oh, cool. <laughs> He's so cool. In 1959, Honda made the leap and entered a team in the 125cc class. In classic Honda fashion, the result was more reliable than flashy, with the Japanese riders placing 6th, 7th, and 8th, and 11th and winning the Manufacturer's Award for Best Overall Performance by Cycle Maker. Nice job, Honda. Very good. In 1961, the Japanese team returned, determined to do better. In addition to their Japanese riders, they brought, Euro- they brought on European racers, including a 21-year-old Brit named Mike Halewood. As a kid, Halewood, whose dad was a motorcycle dealer, learned to ride on a minibike. Mike's dad was a wealthy man, and whatever bike his son needed, he would use his connection and wealth to get. Although the rich dad thing never hurts, plenty of kids with rich dads are not good at motorcycle racing. Mike, <laughs> on the other hand, was a born natural. Who did where what what up to speed did we talk about this guy in? Uh, maybe like know. Triumph or something. Maybe. Um, I love. <laughs> I I just immediately thought of a bunch of like rich kids like. <laughs> and then it hit, it hit a wall and then like a cartoon mushroom cloud comes up. <laughs> we win one, Fjord. <laughs> Halewood attended his first Isle of Man as a teenage spectator in 1956. A year later, started entering local races in Britain. In the words of Colin Goodwin, writing for Motorsport in a 1999 career retrospective, like Jim Clark in Cars... Halewood's talent on a motorcycle was so natural that he didn't really understand what all the fuss was about. <laughs> he could just do it. That was all. And he looked damn well doing it too. Beautiful <laughs> legs. That's not part of the muscular quote. Vascular <laughs> arms. I'm reading it right here. Vascular neck. Vascular <laughs> neck crowned by a helmet. One of the most natural beasts I've ever seen. (laughs) That natural talent earned him the nickname Mike the Bike Halewood. The name says a good nickname. Yeah, that's a sick nickname. That's a sick name. The addition of young Halewood to Honda immediately paid off for the company as Halewood won the 125cc and 250cc of 61 on an island notorious for being long dominated by British motorcycles where American motorcycles had decades ago given up on competing. The Japanese company had conquered the lower CC divisions in just three years. For his part, Mike the Bike, known for being fearless on the track but humble and friendly off of it, became an instant legend on the island, winning the 500cc race on a Norton in addition to the 125 and 250cc races he won for Honda. With that victory, he became the first rider in Taurus Trophy history to win three races in one year. That's so many miles in a week. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. Yeah. That next year, Halewood signed with the Italian manufacturer MV Augusta. Like Honda, MV had been founded immediately after World War II. But other than the timing of the company's foundings, the two brands couldn't be more different. Honda made motorcycles for the people and saw racing as a chance to popularize their machines. In contrast, MV was owned and operated by Count Domenico Augusta, an Italian nobleman with a boutique operation that sold motorcycles in small quantities only to fund his racing efforts. Honda was the Volkswagen of motorcycle world. MV Augusta was the Ferrari. This Hell is yeah. one of Jeremiah's favorite uh, motorcycle companies, by the way. We just pitched an idea to them that Jeremiah is going to do a bumper to bumper on that bike, but then go 200 miles an hour. That'd I'm be so, so excited yeah. for that. Yeah. 
Between Japanese efficiency and Italian bespoke, the British manufacturers stagnated. In 1962, Norton stopped making two of their signature bikes, the Manx G50 and the 7R. Honda was no longer content to stay in the lower CC classes, and in 1963, their first entry into the 350cc race won. Woo! In the lower CC, Suzuki was now also a factor. I just ordered a Suzuki hat. In a twist, that would have knocked the monocle out of Marquise de Muzili's <laughs> eye. The Isle of Man was now the battlegrounds of Japan and Italy. The British were on the outside looking in. Happens to the best of us, man. That's just I'm how it be sometimes. I'm on the outside. I, I'm looking, I'm looking in. in. I can I see through you. See through the real true colors. Inside you're ugly. Ugly like like me. I can see through you. And it's hard. And it's hard. And it's hard. I'm really surprised Nolan didn't join in on that stained sing along. Yeah, I actually heck, don't dude? know the words to that song very well, so I declined. About that, if about it was that. Uh, if it was right here or if it was right here or Mud Shovel, I would have gotten right mm. in there, dude. Uh, <laughs> Mud Shovel. I bought that album the day it came out, boy. Are you big? Are you still a big Aaron Lewis fan? Yeah, dude, biggest. You've seen my tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> Just a <laughs> tattoo of Aaron Lewis's bald head on your bicep. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I've got it, I've got it, Aaron Lewis right here. I've got <laughs> David Draymond right here. Two of my bald boys right there, dude. It just says, yeah, it just it just says ugly like me. <laughs> I'm gonna get a stained T-shirt. I got a lot of stained T-shirts. If you want to borrow one of mine, <laughs> we'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors. In 1963, Halewood showed what his Augusta was capable of, smashing the course record for fastest lap by setting a 106-mile-per-hour ripper. No thanks. The race <laughs> had first been won with Charlie Collier, a dude with a mustache and a woolen cap who looked like a forgotten third Wright brother, farting around the island on what he probably <laughs> called a newfangled contraption at 38 miles an hour. Now, it was being dominated by a kid who had literally grown up on top of a bike. It's the difference between a boomer playing Pac-Man a couple times in an arcade versus a zillennial who started playing Call of Duty with a 16-button mouse and Google Fiber when he was five. The race, the race itself was getting huge. In 1964, there were 450 entries across six classes. Honda, Suzuki, and Yamaha were all considered top-tier manufacturers, as well as MV Augusta and Benelli, another Italian company. Halewood again won the senior TT. That year on the motorcycle Grand Prix circuit, Halewood won seven out of nine of the races in the 500cc class. Wow. He was like the Alain Prost without a Senna. But that would all change. In 1965, Giacomo Agostini, or just Ago, had a very different upbringing than Mike Halewood. Born in Brisk Briscia, Brescia, 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 Brescia. Born in Brescia, Italy, in 1942, he was only a couple years younger and also born into wealth. However, unlike Halewood's motor dealing daddy, Ago's <laughs> father was not a motorcycle fan and discouraged his son from competing. At one point, Agostini told his dad he was, quote, cycle racing, leading him to believe he was pedaling a Schwinn and not tearing around the countryside straddling an engine on wheels. Like Halewood, Ago was well-liked. He had classic Italian charm and movie star good looks, just like me. <laughs> After performing well in local races, he caught the attention Wait, that doesn't of say it in the script. Did you just ad-lib that? <laughs> yeah, dude. Oh. Uh, <laughs> after Ciao, performing Bella. well in some oh, yeah, some <laughs> local races, uh, Ago caught the attention of Count Domenico Augusta of MV Augusta. Augusta appreciated the success Halewood had brought his marquee, but his dream was an Italian rider winning atop one of his Italian bikes, presumably after eating an Italian uh, <laughs> sub, sub. <laughs> and um, and a Pellegrino. 
Yeah. Ooh, I could go for a nice Pellegrino right now. Yeah, and Ooh. then just like after the race, he drinks some Prosecco, eats some tiramisu. Yeah. All while wearing a Mario, Super <laughs> Mario t-shirt. Uh, so Count Domenico recruited Ago for MV. Halewood was only 25 himself, but having raced in 24 TT events, he was considered the veteran of the team and expected to mentor Ago for the Isle of Man. Luckily, the two men got along well. With Halewood's coaching, Ago managed to pick up a third-place finish in the 350cc race. Mike the Bike was good for a first-place finish in the 500cc senior TT. In the Grand Prix season of that year, Halewood would again dominate the 500cc class, winning 8 out of 10 races. However, the sparks of a rivalry were starting to show, with Agostini picking up a Grand Prix win at the Finnish Grand Prix. There's a lot of like double letters in this script. It's all just yeah. like 500, CC, TT, PP, Wee Wee. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was going to mention something. I'm on the outside. I'm a grinner, grinner, and a turn, and a crown, and a wasted, even sad. Did you know that um, uh, Aaron Lewis was discovered by um, uh, uh, Fred, Fred Durst? Durst. Yeah. yeah. And Fred Big Durst, friends with Fred Durst was discovered thought, by Jonathan Davis. Really? He was his I don't tattoo think that's artist. Accurate. Yeah, Fred Durst was his tattoo artist. Whoa. No, and, I, think, I don't think and, that's accurate, dude. Yeah, Jonathan man. Davis... And, Corn, corn is from Oildale over near Bakersfield, and uh, Limp Biscuit, they were over down there in Fort Lauderdale in Florida. I know, but at this time, corn was touring. Oh, gotcha. Well, anyway, Fred Durst, I think, said that Aaron Lewis was going to be the next Kurt Cobain. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that's why there was so much hype around that first Stained album. It's like Fred Durst kept like hyping up Stained and Aaron Lewis. And that's why it was such a huge commercial success. Wait, Fred Durst is on Young Money Records? Is on Cash Money Records? What? What? Yeah. What? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's crazy. Big shout out to the POD cast, where I've learned a lot of great new metal knowledge. Uh, I love that show. Booyaka shot. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, okay, we interrupt this new metal <laughs> podcast and return to our, our <laughs> motorcycle podcast. Well, let's talk about some old metal. How about that? <laughs> yeah, let's talk about... In 1966, Halewood was fed up with Augusta and counting the days until he could be done with the count. And he left the Italian team to return to Honda, who promised him a bike to enter in his dominant 500cc class, as well as an eye-popping salary. Salary was popping. Whoa. <laughs> Somebody stop me. <laughs> Boy. <laughs> um, Count Augusta, for his part, was happy to be free of Halewood and give Augustini the spotlight. His dream of an Italian on Italian star had finally come true. <laughs> Honda did not disappoint Mike Halewood. For the 250cc, he was supplied an RC166, a brilliant piece of early Honda engineering that was the motorcycle equivalent of a Fabergé egg. Ooh. It featured six minuscule 22-millimeter cylinders, four camshafts, and a seven-speed transmission. Wow. The engine could rev out to 18,000 RPM with 65 what? horsepower and a top speed of over 150 miles per how have I never heard of this before? It was an insane package, Joe, for a lightweight class bike that only weighed 260 pounds. And for the 500cc, Honda presented Halewood with the beefy big boy RC181, an air-cooled inline four with dual overhead camshafts. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this bike is sick. Yeah, dude. Have you guys seen it? I love little cylinders, but a lot of them. That's my favorite. Yeah. 
1966 Isle of Man TT was delayed due to a semen strike, which sounds like the start of a Cialis <laughs> commercial. But when it was finally held in September, Halewood dominated in the lightweight 250cc division on his RC-166, finishing nearly six minutes ahead of the next closest rider. In the 350cc class, he had to retire early due to a broken valve, opening the door for Agostini to cruise into his first style of man victory. The bad one was now a Jedi. Next Ooh. up was the duel with his master, with the narrow roads of man serving as the motorcycling version of Mustafar. The, content, <laughs> the contest was the senior TT, and Mike the Bike showed exactly why the 500cc race was considered to be his event. While Agostini recorded an impressive 101-mile-per-hour average pace over the course of the grueling 236-mile race, that just wasn't enough. Just like on Mustafar, Obi-Wan defeated Annie and <laughs> cut off all his freaking legs and kicked him into the lava as Halewood won by 22 seconds. Wow showing the enormous gap between MV and Honda compared to the rest of the field. Chris Kahn placed third on a Norton bike, nearly eight minutes behind Ago and Halewood. Wow. For context, that's the runtime of a full lightsaber duel on Mustafar. That really puts it in the picture for me, or into context. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. The Grand Prix <laughs> Championship of that year was a different story. While Halewood and Ago both won three races apiece, Ago finished first in points, knocking Mike the Bike off of his throne. Ago had proven that he was a force to be reckoned with, and 1967 was shaping up to be an exciting showdown between the two racers. Cool. Very cool. Entering the 1967 Isle of Man TT, Halewood was struggling with the handling on his 500cc Honda. He wanted to substitute a British frame that he thought would help with the suspension, but Honda wouldn't allow it. Augustini, meanwhile, was looking formidable on top his MV Agusta, having won his first 500cc Grand Prix race of the season at the Hockenheim Ring in West Germany. Love that place. Haven't been there, would love to go. Augusta put down a blazing first lap of the TT race with a 108.38 mile per hour race that shattered the course record Halewood had set the previous year. Mike the Bike rose to the challenge, responding with a 108.77 mile per hour second lap, immediately taking the course record back and nearly catching up with Agostini in no time. The race, according to Isle of Man tradition, was a time trial, so Halewood and Agostini were not directly neck and neck, but they knew through pit stops that the race was still too close to call. Something had to give. And it turned out to be the chain of Ago's bike. Oh, fifth no. lap, it snapped, and Halewood was handed the win. Both riders had performed incredibly. That's... That's... Oh, my God. As the 67 Grand Prix season continued, it was clear the two racers were as evenly matched as the Isle of Man race suggested. Augustini and Halewood completely shut out the rest of the field, each winning five of the season's ten total races. And at the end of the year... Since Ago had three second places to Halewood's two, the Italian was again the Grand Prix champion. Unfortunately, the rivalry would end in its prime. Honda shocked the motorcycling world by announcing they were suspending their racing program. In less than a decade, they had conquered motorcycle racing and made their bikes the world standard. Management saw little reason to stick around. Before making their exit, they ensured that Halewood would remain a Honda motorcycle racer in the memory of fans. They paid in 50,000 pounds or over a million dollars in today's money to have Halewood agree not to race for another team. Whoa. Whoa. That's like what Nike did with Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. If this was a movie, we'd fade to black before showing a freeze frame of Mike Halewood popping champagne at the finish line of the TT. The text would read, Mike the bike took his million Honda bucks and went to race on four wheels in the 1969 Le Mans, nice. placing third. He also raced Formula One and Formula Two, winning the 1972 F2 world title or uh, European title, rather. That's pretty cool. This might have been when we were talking about him in this context. Yeah. At the age of 38 or 140 in motorcycling years, he. <laughs> 
He returned to the Isle of Man after an 11-year hiatus and riding a Ducati 900 SS won a shocking upset victory that reduced him to tears at the finish line. Just three years later, he would unfortunately die in a tragic car accident. That same year, the TT would name a stretch of the course Halewood's Height, one of the highest points on the track, a fitting tribute to a racer who had truly elevated his sport. Next, a photo of Giacomo Agostini pulling a wheelie, his hair all wavy, and his red racing leathers unbuttoned to reveal manly chest hair, just (laughs) like mine. The text would read, With his mentor and rival gone from competition in 1968, Ago absolutely dominated the Motorcycle Grand Prix for five straight years, winning every single 350cc and 500cc title from 1968 to 1972. Wow. In 72... Ago's fellow Italian racer and close friend Gilberto Parlotti would die racing at the Isle of Man TT in 72, and an emotional Ago would announce that he was boycotting the Isle of Man race, upset at how dangerous the course had become. This snowballed into a wider boycott that led to the Motorcycle Grand Prix dropping the Isle of Man TT from their schedule. The most storied race in motorcycle history was now considered a liability. Next week on Pass Gas, we'll talk about the future of the TT after it's dropped from the Grand Prix schedule and the staggering death toll of the race. And finally, we'll answer the question once and for all, why the Isle of Man is considered to be the most dangerous race on Earth. Can't wait. It's cool. This one was just about like the glory of winning and just just honor and just really bad. (laughs) But we really did not touch on the fact that this is widely agreed to as one of the dangerous most dangerous events in motorsport yeah normally i i'd love to like fantasize about doing different racing and like going to different tracks and different kinds of cars and stuff i think about all the time Mm -hmm. this is one of those races that i would i you know i don't really want to do it i'm good i'm good i'm good yeah you know what you guys have your thing you can do that Mm -hmm. but we'll see why they love it so much because it's one of the one of the scariest things to ever watch on youtube is like um, motorcycles like getting the speed wobbles. Ugh. Oh yeah, and they're just like, oh, <laughs> for Too sure, scary. it's uh, scary as heck. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening or watching Past Gas this week. Uh, I I hope you guys are doing well. Um, follow James Pumphrey on all social media at James Pumphrey. Yeah. Follow Joe at Joe G Weber. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and follow me at Nolan J. Sykes. Follow Donut. If you, if you uh, don't subscribe to Donut, um, please do that. That would be awesome. Tell your friends about the show, too. If you if you have some friends you think would like would like Pass Gas, let them know. Um, Take care <laughs> of yourselves. I love you. Be kind. I'll see you next time. And a wink wink. <laughs> Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.